Our text for tonight is going to be taken from Mark 10.45, although if you look at Matthew 20 and verse 28, you'll see nearly the same thing. But I've chosen to use Mark's account because I think there are um, a kind of, of set of passages that lead up to this passage in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. And I want us to look at that. I want us to think about the implications that it has for us. And that passage is as at the top of the page. If, by the way, you've just come in, there are a few handouts on the chair back here near the door. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In fact, let's back up a verse. If you want to turn to Mark chapter 10, and we'll be looking at 8, 9, and 10 uh, for a bit here. But uh, in chapter 10, going to the verse, uh, two verses before this, he has talked to them about how the uh, rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and then he tells the disciples not so with you. That is, that's not the way you should behave. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And that leads to the statement, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Where we have another one of those uh, Jesus came to, I came to, or in this case, the Son of Man, refer, as a way of referring to himself, and probably as a way of uh, uh, indicating that he is messianic. The Son of Man came, I came, not to be served, but to serve. And in that, he's providing an example for the disciples and an example for us. I want us to drop back in the Gospel of Mark and kind of come up to this point showing um, what goes on basically from about the middle of the Gospel of Mark. If we, you could sit down and read the Gospel of Mark in about an hour. If you're a slow reader, it might take you an hour and a half. And although we often don't do that, I would very much encourage you to do that because we miss something about Scripture when we only read it in pieces, a verse here and a verse there. Or even in our daily readings, we read a couple of chapters, but then we pause. And we don't remember exactly where we were when we start the next day. And even the chapter markings sometimes throw us off. Because sometimes they're not in a very good place. Uh, sometimes the thought is continued right on into the next section. But we're reading two chapters a day. And so at the end of, a, of two chapters, we stop. And we start the next day. However much you might be reading in, in the uh, program of reading that you've set for yourself. Assuming, hopefully, that, uh, that you do have a program of regular reading of the text. But we miss something about the overall flow. So if we had read the first eight chapters of Mark up to this point, we would have seen the notion of Jesus' authority and power emphasized over and over again. When Jesus teaches, 
they say he teaches, he doesn't teach like the scribes and Pharisees, he teaches as one with authority. When Jesus does actions like uh, feeding the 5,000 or healing someone who's demon-possessed or raising someone from the dead, all of those demonstrate Jesus' authority and power. And so through this first eight chapters, uh, Jesus has demonstrated who he was, but he hasn't said, I am Messiah. He doesn't say that at this point, but he does use the term son of man, which is probably a little bit vaguer term with a similar meaning, because he's probably referring to the son of man talked about in Daniel chapter 7, who comes and receives a kingdom from God, and so in indirect ways, kind of call himself the Messiah. Many of the times that he uses even the phrase Son of Man, he's talking to the disciples. And, and we come up uh, in Mark <clears throat> verses 22 through 26 on a very confusing miracle. And it's one of the later miracles in the Gospel of Mark. It's not that Jesus is going to quit working miracles at chapter 8, but he is going to slow down. The pace of the miracles in the Gospel of Mark is considerably slower than it was earlier. And there seems to be a kind of turning point here with what, what we'll be reading in the next few minutes, in which Jesus begins to turn from demonstrating by his actions who he is to teaching more individually the disciples more precisely what he's going to do and what that means for them. And verses 22 through 26 are really odd because he comes to Bethsaida and a blind man is brought to him and he spits on the man's eyes, very unpleasant seeming to us, but uh, actually done a couple of other times in antiquity, uh, both uh, for miraculous purposes and for kind of medicinal purposes. There was some kind of belief that saliva, particularly saliva from a very important person, would uh, have some kind of medicinal power. He spits in the man's eyes, and what we expect to hear and right after verse 23, when Jesus puts his hands on him and says, do you see anything? You expect him to say, wow, I can't believe it. I see the world in technicolor and I see this and I see that. And instead he says, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. I just got a new pair of glasses. I'm not wearing them right now because I can't wear them very well a couple of weeks ago, and I've been struggling to get used to them. I can't say that everyone I look at looks like a tree walking around, but I can say that my vision is not working good when I put those glasses on. So this guy says, I see people, but they look like trees. And you think, Jesus, you don't ever have any trouble working a miracle like this. But he goes back for a second take, verse 25. Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were open, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. This is an amazing miracle. Most of the miracles Jesus works, it's 
very easy for us to understand. We may not understand why he does something like spits and makes a mud pack and puts it on someone's eyes, or why he sticks his fingers in a man's ears. There may be some of those actions that we find a little unusual, but this is one of the most unusual par parables, or, or uh, <clears throat> I should say miracles, because Jesus takes two attempts. The first one, he gets the man partway. The second one, he gets the man fully. I don't believe you can read the rest of the Gospels and think that this was some kind of momentary inability. Or, or for a little while here, Jesus wasn't quite able to muster up the power, and then he prayed a little bit more, and then he got enough power to, to get it done. I don't think you can read any of the rest of Jesus' miracles and think that's what's going on here. So what is going on here? This doesn't appear in any other gospel, by the way. It appears here, right in the middle of the book, right after the section that we talked about for the first eight chapters where it's demonstrating Jesus' power and authority and identity through his teachings and through his works. And right before, Peter finally says, oh, we get it, you're the Christ. And Peter is also going to turn around and indicate he doesn't understand what that means. In effect, he's going to say, oh, I see. But then he's going to say, oh, it looks like trees walking <laughs> He, he is not going to fully see. And so I slipped and used the word parable a moment ago. I don't think this is a parable, a story that didn't happen. I think this is a miracle, but I think it's an acted parable. We have various places, particularly in the Old Testament, where some of the prophets do something like... Uh, taking a yoke and putting it on your back and walking around and saying this is what's going to happen to, uh, to Israel. That's an enacted parable. They're, they're making a parabolic connection with what we do with animals and saying this is what's going to happen to you, to Israel. I think here that in Mark's narrative, if you read the thing as a whole, don't just read this individual story, you see, it's leading up to a point where the disciples are going to partway get it, but not fully get it. They're going to see people, but they're going to look like trees walking. And so, as we go into the next section, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, Mark doesn't say this, but my suspicion would be that he's wanting to be by himself. He's taking them to an area where he's not as well known, where he can be away. He has tried that with Tyre and Sidon. He had a little trouble there when he threw the demon out of a woman's daughter, and then that sort of blasted reputation around there, and he, and he keeps moving around. So here he goes to Caesarea Philippi, which is up to the north and east of Galilee, where he's done most of his work, and people know him. And on the way, he asked them, who do the people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Now, they don't explain to us um, whether people thought he was literally John the Baptist come again, 
or he was just like John the Baptist. The stories we get in the Gospels would tend, tend to make us think, well, maybe it's just that he's like John the Baptist because he gets baptized by John the Baptist. And presumably a lot of people know the two of them are standing together at one point. On the other hand, there is a point where Herod uh, seems to think maybe it's, yeah, I killed John the Baptist and he's kind of haunted by the whole thing. Maybe John the Baptist has come back. Um, or Elijah, is he literally Elijah come again or is he a figurative Elijah come again? The same thing with one of the other prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. You might have, you are the Messiah. Um, historically, translations have said, you are the Christ, because the, uh, the underlying Greek word is the word Christos, with the first part of which, Christ, would be spelled in English just like we spelled the word Christ, and that's where we get the word Christ. A lot of contemporary translations, including the NIV, which I have in front of me, the new NIV, not the old NIV. I think the old NIV, if you have the 1984, I think it says, you are the Christ. If you have the 2011, it says, you are the Messiah. And what they're trying to do with that is to show that that's what Peter meant. Uh, he wasn't calling Jesus by his last name. But when he used the word Christos, or if he used an Aramaic term that was the equivalent of that, he was talking about Jesus as being the Messiah. Um, and, and so I, I think either one is a fair translation. So it's like Peter gets it. And in fact, of course, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, oh, right you are, Peter. And uh, I'm going to build my church on this uh, confession that you made and so forth and so on. Here it just tells him that he warned them not to tell anyone about it. So he doesn't deny is He, in effect, agrees with it. Um, yeah, I'm the Christ, but I don't want you to tell people. Uh, perhaps we think because um, of one of two reasons. One would be that that would bring a quick end to his ministry before he was ready. If he were to run around making kind of public messianic claims on the Messiah, it might bring the authorities, the rulers, the Romans um, down on him at an earlier point than he's uh, ready for. Um, the other one being that exactly what's going to happen here, and that is that in the popular understanding of being a Messiah, to say Jesus is the Messiah would be wrong. It's right and it's wrong. And so it's right to such an extent that Jesus commends Peter and Matthew, and they seem clearly to accept that here and tell them he's not going to tell others, uh, tell them not to tell others. But it's wrong in that what they thought the Messiah was going to do is go rout the Romans out of the country and set up a government in Jerusalem and rule the world from there. That, that was the, the most popular, it's not the only view, but the most popular view of what the Messiah was going to do. So Jesus chooses this point. He hasn't done this before now in the Gospel of Mark. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, 
and they must be killed, and after three days, rise again. That looks pretty plain to us. We're looking at it from one side of the cross, and they're looking at it from the other one. We're looking at it from one side of Pentecost, and everything happened after that, and they're looking at it from the other one. They're looking at it through the eyes of everything they've heard since they were children. And that the Messiah would go to Jerusalem and not rescue his people, but get killed by his own people? That's not the way the story goes. And so he spoke plainly about this. Seems plain enough to us. And it does seem that Peter has some comprehension. He took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's pretty strong words right there. You know, you, you might think that Mark would say, and, and he disagreed with him. Especially if this is, and, and I would put a lot of stock in early Christian tradition from the beginning of the second century that uh, says that Mark, Mark's gospel probably represents what he heard Peter, Peter teaching. Uh, there are several in the second century and beyond that tell us that. And I think that makes sense. And if it is, and if this is the way Peter talked, then Peter doesn't try to whitewash what happened. Peter just tells it like it is. And he says, so I took him to the side and I rebuked him. I told him, you know, no. No, we're not going to let that happen to you. That's, that's not your story. That's not the way the narrative goes. What in the world are you talking about? But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So you have exactly the flip of what's said right before it. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, it doesn't, Mark doesn't fill us all in on, on what they were expecting, but we think we have a pretty good idea of what the disciples thought. And that will become a little clearer as we look on, particularly into some of the stuff in chapter 10. But then when he does that, he calls the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, for whoever will save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, if you look at this little sheet that I've given you, uh, I have under section one, Jesus' sacrificial death is a pattern for us. That Jesus' healing and blindness in Mark chapter 8, then Peter's confession that we've looked at in 8.27. And then there begins a little three-part pattern that we're going to see three times in a row in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Chapter 8 is in that first column there. Jesus predicts his passion. Passion is... Um, I might not should, should use that word, but it's a common word used in, in theological discussions and in a lot of churches that talk about the Passion Week. So the Passion Week is the week of Jesus' passion, which is an inclusive term that includes not only 
uh, his death per se, but his sufferings leading up to his death and even his resurrection kind of includes the whole week. And Jesus has just given us a very brief summary of that in verse 31. So he predicts what's going to happen in his passion. The disciples then misunderstand it. And in this case, Peter in particular, who seems to speak as a representative disciple here. When, when Jesus says, but who do you, and if he had been speaking Southern English, he'd have said, who do y'all think I am? Uh, that is, it's, it's cast uh, in, the, in the plural here to refer to all of them. And then Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ. He's presumably not only speaking for himself, but, you know, we, we've talked about it, and our consensus is you are the Christ. And so then we have the disciples misunderstanding, though, what the Christ is going to do. When Peter takes him aside and rebukes him, it's very likely that he is not the only one that's concerned about what Jesus just said. Probably they all think this is not the narrative. This is not the way the story goes. We all know what the, how the story is supposed to go. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the literature that's grown up since the Old Testament. Most Jews know what's going to happen here. You're going to go set up a government. And then Jesus teaches the way of the cross. Verses 34 and 35. He rebukes Peter and then he explains, y'all have got the wrong idea about what it means to be a disciple because you think I'm going to set up a government and that you're going to be the cabinet members. But I'm going to go die. And you're not going to be treated very well either. That was not something they wanted to hear about him or about themselves. Look at chapter 8, I mean chapter 9. And it occurs around verse 30 every time, this little pattern. And so Jesus is teaching the disciples in verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. There is Jesus predicting his passion. Then chapter 9, verses 32 through 34, we're told just overtly they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. I wonder a little bit about exactly how this fits with what we heard Peter say when Peter said, no, we're not going to let that happen to you, and he rebukes Peter. Jesus, he seemed to have understood it. But then when, Peter, when, when Jesus slams him to the ground in the rebuke and says, get behind me, Satan, Maybe after that, they weren't exactly sure what he was saying. And they also said, I'm not bringing it up. Are you bringing it up? No, I'm not bringing it up. You know, you can see them look around among each other and saying, uh, after what happened to Peter, I'm not going to say anything about it. So instead, they keep walking to Capernaum. And when they get there, Peter says, Jesus says, what were you arguing about on the road? He knew exactly what they were arguing about. He was just trying to get it out in the open. They kept quiet. So they didn't answer because on the way they had argued about 
who was the greatest. And so here they indicate clearly their misunderstanding of what he's going to do and what they're going to do. And then the next part of chapter 9, beginning with verse 35, Jesus tries to, to teach them the way of the cross. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be very last and servant of all. And then he uses a little child to illustrate that. Now turn to chapter 10. In between these stories, of course, a lot of other things are happening uh, in the, in the uh, story as Mark tells it. But these three segments stand out very strongly, and they begin when Peter finally says, well, we, we've come to the conclusion you're the Christ. Then he starts teaching them more specifically about what that means. They start indicating they don't understand it, and he starts straightening them out. I won't read the entirety of it, but uh, verse 33 in particular is the longest and most detailed presentation of what's going to happen to him in that uh, last week of his life and the, the death and the suffering and the humiliation that he's going to go through. And so that fits the slot of Jesus predicting his passion. Then beginning with verse 35 and carrying us down to about verse 40, you have an illustration that the disciples don't understand it. And this is where James and John come up and say, would you do for us whatever we'd like you to do? <laughs> like, like a little child thinking they're going to sneak something over their parents. Um, and Jesus uh, says, well... Before I say I will, let me ask you what you want me to do. Let us sit at your right hand, one of us sit at your right hand, and the other one at your left in your glory. And probably if this story had gone on and had been more detailed, we'd be told that John later came and said, I want the right and then a little later time, James came up and said, I'd really like the right hand. I deserve it most. Uh, so clearly they have the idea that he's going to start this big government in Jerusalem. And the head people in his cabinet, I mean, all 12 might make it, but the head people are going to be the one on the right hand and the one on the left hand right next to him. And they want the honored places. And so... The ten find out about it in verse 41. They become indignant with James and John. So what do you think they're indignant about? You think that they're uh, pulling James and John over and saying, you don't understand, he's really going to go and die. And none of us are going to sit on his right hand or his left hand. I don't think so. I think they're saying, what are you two doing trying to steal the best seats? The rest of us want those seats too. Jesus ought to make a judgment about the 12 of us deciding who goes there. Why are you sneaking around trying to get the best seats next to the ruler? Verse 42 then fits this last section. Jesus teaches the way of the cross. 
You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. They would probably think about the emperor, and they would think about people like King Herod that were under the emperor but were high officials in the kingdom. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And then right after this, you'll notice there's another blind man getting healed. And so a lot of people think, and I think there'd be some merits to this, that Mark, with these two blind men stories, is sort of putting bookends on this section that has the three predictions, the three cases of misunderstanding, and the three cases of instructing them, no, no, you've got it all wrong. Here's what I'm going to do, and that implies what you're going to do. Uh, you need to be servants as well. Um, this section, this whole section of Mark, I've taught this multiple times. I've also thought multiple times, what if I appeared before God and he says, didn't you teach that stuff about being a servant a lot of times? How well did you do with that, Alan? You know? That makes me a little uncomfortable. It makes me a little uncomfortable every time I go over this same pattern because it's so clear. And it's so perfectly clear that not only is Mark talking about what Jesus said to the 12, but he's talking about what Jesus would say to all of us. He's not just talking about what I've come to give my life means to the 12, but he's talking about what I've come to give my life means to every one of us. He made the supreme servanthood sacrifice going from being with God, creating the earth, having control over everything, to become a human being. That in itself is an incredible amount of sacrifice. And then ultimately to giving his life on a cross with nails in his hand, having been flogged, having had the crown of thorns forced down on his head, being humiliated in the worst way possible during his time frame, hanging on a cross out in front of people. Um, and all of this partly to show us what we should do, to show us the kind of sacrifices we should be willing to make. David's going to lead three songs about servanthood, and I hope that as we sing these, you'll think about this example, and you'll, you'll think about your life. And this is something that seems to me we have to sort of get up every day, we have to get out every week, and say, I'm going to be that servant I've been meaning to be. I'm going to do this and this for others, and not only this and this, for myself. We talked about this series 
of Jesus saying, I have come to blank with some purpose statement at the end of it. Uh, we looked the first night several weeks ago at the many statements he made like that and noted that sometimes what he has come to do is something he intends for us to pick up and to follow him in and to be ourselves. And I think if we look at the context of, of this saying in Mark chapter 10, and particularly at verses 43 and 44 leading up to verse 45, we feel that a lot of the emphasis is you need to serve for even I didn't come to be served, but to serve. But there is another phrase here. And this other phrase indicates something unique that Jesus does that we do not do. We might give our life uh, in, in service of others. We might uh, even be called upon, and some of us know of people who gave their lives in trying to help someone else uh, in a physical sense, and hopefully many who in a spiritual sense poured them out, poured themselves out in the help of other people. Many of us know a spouse who has given a major portion of their life uh, to, the, to their spouse and to the care of their spouse. Um, but to give our life as a ransom for others is not something we can do. This is something that Jesus did once for all and totally did. And so second point on this page Jesus' sacrificial death as a ransom for us, as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and the parallel in Matthew chapter 10, 20 and verse 28, uh, both use a word that uh, can be translated ransom or it can be translated redemption. It, it was very commonly used in, in trying to think of what would most people in that time period think in their heads when they saw the word ransom? I think they would primarily think of, of a payment that is made to free somebody, either from slavery or from prison. Maybe the most common ransom they would be familiar with is, is a ransom payment that was made to free a slave from slavery. Uh, so, you know, there, there, there certainly were instances in antiquity where somebody was kidnapped and held for ransom, but I doubt that that's the major thought here, since everyone was familiar, especially with the notion of slavery, and with the notion that even sometimes slaves were allowed to save money and to buy or purchase their own freedom so they could get uh, freedom themselves by paying the ransom, or someone else could pay the ransom, either to purchase the slave, so they could be their slave. Um, and so the scripture doesn't think of just freedom from slavery, but freedom from slavery to sin to slavery to God. It's not that we're set uh, completely free by this ransom. 
But uh, the notion of a ransom, and in fact, this particular term is only used in the New Testament in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and Matthew verses 20, verse 28. But a very similar term is used in a lot of other passages, a term that, that sounds very much like and is sort of an expansion of the term. Uh, this is lutron, and the term in these next passages is uh, apolutrosis, and lutro is, uh, is in the middle of uh, both of these terms. This also means redemption or ransom, and it is used much more often in the New Testament. And uh, I wanted to point out just a few of the instances where it's used by Paul. Look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Uh, that's actually, I have one in verse 24. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, and they are also justified freely by His grace through the redemption or the ransom, there's that term, that came through Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. I keep looking for what I'm looking for. It's not verse 4. It's verse 7. In him we have redemption, that is in Christ, we have redemption or ransom through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And so here we have the particular price that was paid, the price of Jesus' blood that was paid to ransom us, to set us free from sin. And then Colossians chapter 1 Verses 13 and 14, hopefully I have the right verses in this case. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, that is, God has rescued us, in whom we have redemption or ransom, the forgiveness of sins. And so in a couple of these passages, we've seen not only the idea of the ransoming but specifically what we're ransomed with, the blood of Christ, and what we're ransomed to, the forgiveness of our sins. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, which we could give three times or so the number of passages that are given here to illustrate the point of Jesus' death as a ransom to buy our freedom. But 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18-19 uh, are a couple of the clearest. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. Here is the verb form of that same, verb, of that same word, that you're redeemed or ransomed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
a lamb without blemish or defect. And so here we again have a statement of what we're ransomed from, in this case, our vain way of life, our empty way of life that we had inherited from our ancestors. Here he probably has in mind the Gentiles and what had been passed down to them and what was paid as a ransom, the precious blood of Christ. We could, of course, have spent this evening focusing on this second aspect. I wanted to focus it primarily on the first aspect of the example that Jesus gives us of service. But here in the same saying, it's also the mention of what is really unique about his death, that he ransoms us from our sins. So thank you all. David will be teaching next week, and we'll return to one of the sayings about why Jesus came.